The scripture reading this morning is Haggai 1:12 through 2:9. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet, now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. There are good times, and there are hard times. It's burned nearly 300 structures. Russian forces are launching a new large-scale offensive. Does it feel like we are trending toward hard times? Record prices at the pump. The state's reservoirs are alarmingly low. Food shortages, inflation, invasions, lawlessness, fires, crop failures, and supply chain turmoil are all the news. What's going on? Could it be that God is using all this to get our attention? It has happened before. In the days of the prophet Haggai, Israel began a great work, but their attention was diverted and the good work abandoned. That's when things unraveled and God taught them and teaches us how to do what matters most. So I was working on a project using a, uh, a disc that's about nine inches around that was something you could use to grind concrete. And so I was grinding down some concrete 
And I remember as I was doing this, there was a string hanging down from an upper part of the structure. And I remember thinking, you know, I probably should get that out of the way. Hardly had I thought that than the string caught in the thing and it jerked and took off the tip of my finger. Uh, and uh, I was able to recover the piece, but when I took it to the emergency room, they said, I'm, I'm sorry, we can't attach it. So, so anyway, there's a the part of my fingertip on my left hand that's missing. Now, uh, God was very gracious because he gave me, you know, all I lost, you know, I could have lost, <laughs> lost a hand or worse, I just lost a fingertip. And that was God's way of saying, Jim, don't be stupid. <laughs> and I have many experiences where that is the message. God doesn't allow us to time travel, you know, to go, to go back into the past and change our choices or alter our circumstances or correct our mistakes. But God does allow us to make a fresh start. And that's really the center of the purpose of the gospel. It's an opportunity to make a new beginning, one that converts the painful experiences of the past into wisdom for better choices in the future. And that's what we as a church are doing right now. If you were at the In the Know meeting, it's basically about we want to make a fresh start. We want to better please God and better represent him which, by the way, was exactly the challenge that was issued to Israel in the book of Haggai. So studying the book of Haggai is not just an intellectual exercise. Oh, let's learn about this Old Testament prophet. It's actually an opportunity to hear what would God say to a people who want to make a fresh start, who want to do better. So let's listen in to what God said through his servant Haggai to his people. Now to do this, we need to review a little bit from what we said last week. Last week, we looked at the first message which occurred on, or was given, delivered on August 29, 520 BC. And God broke a silence of 65 years by speaking through the prophet Haggai. Now, when I say silence of 65 years, I mean in the land. Jeremiah left with a remnant that went to Egypt and there was no prophet's voice. Yes, Ezekiel was in Babylon and Daniel was in Babylon and God spoke through them. But in this particular place, there had been no voice from God. The place that was the place where the temple was. In the message, as we looked at it last week, the core message was consider your ways. Do an evaluation. Do a health assessment. Weigh your heart. Ask yourself, based on what I see, what matters to me, really? And God informed them that their circumstances could actually be helpful. He said, you can use Deuteronomy 28 kind of like a dash light. When a light comes on in the dash, I know I need more coolant or I, there's an oil problem or that dreaded check engine light where who knows what all that one means but there's something that's not right look at Deuteronomy 28 he said and you will see that your current circumstances are shouting to you your priorities are not right something's messed up 
God told them, go to the mountain, which was a cow imperative. It's basically God saying, drop what you're doing and do this. Go to the mountain, get wood, and rebuild the temple. Why? So that I may be pleased and be honored. If you will do this, it will give me pleasure and it will make me look good. Now, just think about that for a minute. I mean, (laughs) you actually have it within your ability to give the God of the universe pleasure. You can actually do something where God says, that is so fun, I love it. That's what he was saying to them. Go up to the mountains, get the wood, come back, rebuild the temple. That's what would please me. And that's what would make me look good. And by implication, that is something that God has given men the power to do. To actually give the God who has everything pleasure. Well, let's, we didn't do this last week because of some time constraints, but let's get the backstory a little bit, all right? According to Ezra 1.5, it says this, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. In other words, this remnant of 40 plus thousand people were the ones who were energized and on mission. God was working and they were, amped up to go do something amazing to return to do the 600 mile journey to Jerusalem and rebuild a temple so when you ask who's going to do this I'll do it and why I am so excited about rebuilding the temple that's the purpose shocker 14 years of neglect they started out Started out well, laid the foundation in the first two years, but then the project was dormant. (laughs) What happened? I mean, they started out all energized. We're on mission. And 14 years after they started, you'd look at it and you'd say, what? Didn't look like there's been any activity. What happened? The book of Ezra gives us some information to help. In Ezra 3.3, we find out that upon arrival, they had a reality check. It says this, they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. When they were in Babylon and they were going to return, they're going, oh, I'm so amped up, I can't wait till we get there. And then when they got there, they discovered a people who were hostile. This was not what they thought it was going to be. But they started the temple. They started to work on the temple. And by the second year, they had completed the foundation of it. The neighbors said to them, this is from Ezra 4.2, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, which is 200 years earlier, who brought us up here. There's, we, we want to have a part of this project. So may we 
Yeah, there's one problem. We learn this from 2 Kings 17, 41. Uh, Esarhaddon's policy was he would take peoples and he would relocate them in order to basically break down their national identity so that they would not be a threat to him militarily. And so all these displaced people had been sent different places, including to Israel. And here's what we learn from the book of Kings. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols, their children likewise, and their grandchildren as their fathers did. So they do to this day. In other words, this is a people who they're saying, yeah, we worship God and we worship other gods too because, you know, we want to kind of hedge our bets. And they said, we'd, we'd like to be a part of this project. <laughs> well, you, you don't quite understand. The God that we serve is a God who says, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see a little disconnect here? And Israel said, no, we don't want your cooperation and your help because we see that this will dilute our devotion to the Lord. And the minute that happened, the posture of the people changed. Ezra 4.4 says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. Hey, we want to help. I'm sorry, that's not appropriate given what you're involved in. All right, well, then you were going to see hey, how hard we can make this. Ezra 4.24, then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So when Haggai speaks to God's people some years later, He's actually calling them to say yes to doing what pleases and honors God despite the cost of harassment, despite their fears of rejection and reprisal, despite the raw challenges of merely surviving. What God was saying through Haggai was, I would like you to make a fresh start by doing what pleases me despite the fact that it will be costly. Israel, you're going down, this is God talking through Haggai. Israel, you're going down the same path your forefathers did. You are allowing, making other people satisfied and your fear of them to compromise your allegiance to me. It didn't turn out well for your ancestors. It won't turn out well for you. You are at risk of a second exile. And in Haggai's message, implicit in this is, trust me, you may think you are watching out for your own interests, but you're actually doing the exact opposite. You're hurting yourselves. So message two follows. It's the one that was read earlier from Haggai verse, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. In verses 12 and 13, it actually describes the same day. 
So through Haggai, God said, consider your ways, build the temple. And then we read in verses 12 and 13 what happened. And then we hear a second message that happens on the same day. Think of it almost as a Sunday morning service and then kind of lunch and then the evening service. So in the morning message, God said, consider your ways. Your priorities are so messed up. Look at the dash light. It's telling you your priorities are messed up. Go to the mountain. Get right with God. Please him. Honor him. And so the, the, the people connected with that message. And then God spoke with the evening message, and he responded to what they said. And his message was pretty short. It was four words. And these words are God's response to the people's response. The people responded to the first message, and then God responds to them. God said, connect the dots. They did. And here is God's response. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the people showed reverence from the Lord, for the Lord. From the top down, from Zerubbabel, Joshua, to all the people, Haggai's message hits a bullseye. By the way, in the first message, they were called this people. They weren't called my people. But now he calls them the remnant, the cream. He says, now you are the remnant. Not because they never got off track, but because they get back on track, which is what's happening right now. Now, there are two positive things that, are, that happened as a result of the message. The first is implied. They considered their ways. Now, it doesn't say, so the people considered their ways, but clearly they did. And they honestly asked themselves, have I been devoted to my agenda and allowed my associated efforts to squeeze out the doing of what God desires? And their answer was yes. They asked, are my current struggles precisely what God said would happen if I neglect him? And they said, yes. They're capable of admitting that their priorities are out of whack. And then they declared, now I'm expanding a little bit. This is uh, my words, but I want to stop living out of fear of men and self-protection because that's what was driving them. I want to live from a trust in God and a healthy longing for his pleasure. And it says, this is from the text, they showed reverence for God. They decided, I want to do what pleases God, and that's it. They stopped being driven by fear, the harassment of the people, and they decided... I've evaluated what my life says about what's important to me. That's got to change, and I'm going to show reverence to God. I'm going to live for his pleasure alone. So verse 13 says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, here's God's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. 
The word then in verse 13 tells us that this is a response. This is God responding to the people. They obey and they revere God. It says they obeyed and they revered, so God says. By the way, in this verse, it says, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord, I am with you, declares the Lord, there shouldn't be any doubt about where this message is coming from. This is the Lord talking. And the Lord has said, I am with you. Now that promise, although very short, is quite potent. God is declaring a partnership where there was opposition before. Remember, God said, I'm the one who called for the drought. We've had two weeks of drought and I'm ready for it to be done. <laughs> I can't imagine what they were dealing with. But here God is saying, you have decided I want to put you first, God. Now I'm going to partner with you. I'm not going to oppose you. I'm going to be your partner. You are choosing to do the right thing when it is a hard thing. But I will be your partner when you do the right thing. When God says, I am with you, it's a promise that's often given when God presents a challenge to his servants, to his people. In fact, I've looked at all the places where this is used in the Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament, and almost always, and there is 91% of the times that it shows up, it is a promise that is given as an antidote to debilitating fear, and that's the case here. They were afraid, so they neglected the temple and just were in survival mode. But here God says to a people who've decided, I refuse to fear. I'm going to do what pleases God. And God says, I'm with you. This promise is an invitation to enter into a bold partnership. And these promises are often delivered prior to or at the time a challenge is presented. And that's the case here. It's the case in other places. For example, listen to this passage. This is where, one of the places in the New Testament where God says this. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. Notice the fear factor. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. In, in this passage, Paul was allowing his fear of men to silence his witness. The, the grammar is actually saying, stop being afraid, start talking, because I'm with you. I'm going to be your partner in this. Here's, by the way, a place where God actually says it, same phrase, to you. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Uh, daunting. Behold, see this, I am with you. You do this, I'm going to partner with you. Jesus has said to you and to me, because this commission was given to the 12 and through them given to us, Jesus has said the same thing to us. Do what I'm asking, do what pleases me, and I will be your partner. And they came, 
and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So the work commences actually 23 days after the message. Now, why the delay? My thought is any project of this scale is going to take some time to organize. Here's a summary of what has happened. The people determined to put God first. God said, consider your ways. You've been living in a way that shouts, I don't matter. Change that. And they have said, we are going to change that. We want to start living in a way that says God is first. We're going to express that by doing what he's asked, which is to rebuild the temple. And then God says, I'm with you. And the first evidence of that is God energizes the leaders and the people. It is like they are jet propelled and they're saying, let's do this. And the work on the temple resumed 23 days later. Circumstances hadn't changed. But their hearts had changed. Here's your principle. When you restore God as your center, he pivots from opposition to partnership. I'll say it again. When you restore God as your center, he pivots from opposition to partnership. First uh, Peter 5, 5. God is opposed to the proud. There is the proud man. God is here saying... Okay, God is the immovable rock, and you're not getting past him. But notice this, he gives grace to the humble. That's what's going on here. They have chosen to restore God as their center and decided, I am going to live for your pleasure and nothing else matters. And he's going to be with them. He's going to be their partner. Well, message number three, and I'm calling it message number three, begins in chapter two because message one and two both occurred on the same day. They were like the morning and the evening sermon. But here's the next one that came. This is Haggai 2, verses one through nine. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtal, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying... So this is October 17, 520 B.C. So it's one month and 21 days later after the second message. The temple project had been restarted, so they've been a, a, a month and a few days into it. But the people were discouraged, and there's a couple of reasons why. One, this one's not stated in the text but I can see how this would work. Based upon the Jewish calendar, there would have been a ton of holidays during this period. Uh, there was the Feast of Trumpets on the 1st. The Day of Atonement was on the 10th. The Festival of Booths was the 15th through the 22nd, plus numerous Sabbaths. So a lot of challenges. But that was not the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge was they looked at what they were building and their reaction was, this is not very impressive. For some of them, a few of them, they remembered what the Solomon's temple looked like. And they thought, this is so pitiful what we're doing. Okay, God told us to build the temple, but and we're doing it, and we're doing it because we want to honor him and please him, but it sure looks like a big nothing. 
Do you realize that one of the names of our God, you know, he has many names, one of them is God of encouragement. Listen to this. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God who comforts the depressed. God comforts the depressed. In this case, it was Paul. He was saying, struggles outside, turmoil inside. God who comforts the depressed. In this case, comforted us by the coming of Titus. God knows when we are discouraged doing what pleases him. That's what Paul was doing. And will encourage us just as he encouraged Paul in the perfect moment. And for Israel, this is one of those moments. He says, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? <laughs> God through Haggai asks three questions. Now, God is not asking questions because he doesn't know the answer. God never asks questions where he doesn't know the answer. Jesus never asked questions where he didn't already know the answer. But he wants the people to know he knows their discouragement. The temple had been destroyed 66 years earlier, and some probably remember it from their childhood. And the comparison did not favor the current project. Now, I had an experience that I think comes close to this. So when I was a kid, this would be in the 50s, uh, at Christmas, we would go to Sears, the Sears in Tacoma, Washington. And it was amazing. They actually had a train inside there, you know, that would kind of take the kids around and you'd ride on the train and you'd see all this stuff. And I was just in awe. <laughs> And then, you know, 30 years later, before that Sears closed, I went to that store. This is after we had lived in L.A. for a while and came back, and uh, <laughs> I looked and I thought, this is pitiful. <laughs> I thought this was so amazing. This is like you know, an overgrown closet, you know. And so, anyway, my viewpoint was so different. I think that factor probably had something to do with what was going on here as it related to the temple too. I mean, here's someone who's 10 years old and who's seeing the temple and just going, wow, Solomon's temple. And then 76 years later, they see this thing that they're building and he's going, this is nothing like what I remember. The people are discouraged and God knows it even though they're doing the right thing because they don't see the big picture. They don't see the future of their project. Comparison is a motivation killer when you're doing what God asks. Doing what we do for God's pleasure is worth doing despite how it might seem, but it helps to see what you're doing from God's perspective. God, would you help me understand what it is I'm doing? And so here's what he says. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, 
son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says it again, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. I have to ask myself this question. You don't survive in ministry without asking this of yourself. When I'm doing what God asks of me, comparison with what others are doing or their impressive results is irrelevant, even harmful. Focusing on that will diminish my energy and motivation to do what God is asking of me. I need to do what I do because God is pleased in it and I don't worry about what it looks like. If you will focus on what God says our actions will produce, it will increase your energy for obedience. By the way, that's actually one of the pieces of armor in the Christian's armor set in Ephesians 6. Maybe someday we'll talk about it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God opens their eyes to four things that they don't see. And this is one of the ways that God encourages his servants. His servants. For example, when a great army with chariots and horses surrounded Elisha, his servant was filled with fear. Only because he didn't see what God knows, and in this case, what Elisha saw. Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He was fearful, the servant was, because he didn't see. Israel is discouraged with this temple project because they don't see something. And God is gracious enough to say, I'm going to pull back the curtain and I'm going to let you see four future facts. These four future facts, if you understand them, they tell you that it may not look that impressive, but doing what is pleasing to me will impress. Here's some of the reasons why. Future fact number one, he says, once more, I will shake the nations. Basically, what he's saying is, right now, you're in an environment that seems politically hostile. I am going to rewrite the map, and political opposition is going to collapse. Number two, they will come with the wealth of all nations. You look at this and it looks unimpressive. I am going to bring about an economic reversal leading to a vast flow of resources, temple word. Everyone is going to want a part of this. Number three, I'm going to fill this house with glory. Do you realize that the temple that they are building was renovated by Herod but it was the same temple. And this particular statement, I will fill this house with glory, is something that occurred in stages. For example, when Simeon saw Jesus, he said, 
My eyes have seen, and by the way, this was in the temple they built. My eyes have seen the glory of your people, Israel. In the future, it will be filled with millennial glory. Basically, what he's saying is you are building a building that, unlike all other buildings, is a building where I will bless it with my presence. A building to which all nations will be bringing their wealth. That's what you're involved in. And the latter glory will be greater than the former. You are building a building that will make Solomon's temple pale by comparison. And then, by the way, future fact number four. In this place, I will give peace. I'm going to accomplish what is necessary for me to dwell in the center of your lives. And this he did when Jesus fulfilled on the cross, not far from this temple site, what the sacrifices depicted, and the temple veil was rent in two. Our motivation to persevere turns on using the eyes of faith instead of relying on personal perceptions. Do what pleases the Lord. Doesn't look like much. You don't see. Even a cup of cold water in Jesus' eyes has enduring value when it is given to please him. So in everything that God is asking of you, you face a very simple choice. Use your eyes to say, (laughs) doesn't look like much. Or believe God who says, living for my pleasure is the one thing worth doing. Will you live all in for Jesus? It will be worth it. Paul agrees, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Toil for the Lord is not in vain. So I have to ask, what hard thing is Jesus asking of you right now, today, this week? What is it that he is saying, for my pleasure, do this? Have you said to him, well, now is not really the right time. Haggai is God's clear declaration. Will you make a fresh start? Will you decide I'm going to live all in for his pleasure? I'm going to do what he wants. Then God says, I will partner with you. And you can trust me that what I'm asking of you will have enduring value. Now, I can't let this moment go without also talking about the ultimate fresh start. It's possible that you have lived a life on your terms, seeking your own pleasure, your own pursuits. Salvation is a decision. I choose to embrace Jesus as my Lord, the one who's going to tell me what to do, and my Savior, the one who purchased my salvation. That is the ultimate fresh start, and it is available to anyone in this room who would pray a prayer as simple as this. And I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads, but if this prayer answers to your heart, please pray it. Let's pray.
Father, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I have sought to live on my terms and for my pleasure. But I also know that for that, I deserve eternal separation from you. But Jesus Christ came and not far from the temple, he died on the cross for me and has made it possible for him to be my savior. And so I name him now as my savior. And he has made it possible for me to partner with him to make a fresh start and to live a life holy for your pleasure. Thank you that Jesus saved me. Thank you that I can become a new person in him. Father, for everyone else in this room, my plea is that we would be a people who are on mission, who are living for your pleasure, despite what our culture throws at us, despite what our eyes tell us about how it might not look like much. But we do it because it pleases you, and we do it because you will be our partner. And that makes us bold. Make of us this week a bold people on the move, doing what pleases you alone in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name.